Welcome to Conversations with Friends About Church History. I'm Steve Weaver, a Baptist pastor with a Ph.D. in church history. On this podcast, I want to have conversations with some of my friends who happen to be church historians. We'll talk about how we met, how our lives and academic careers have intersected, and discuss church history. I hope you enjoy these conversations. I certainly will. Well, it's great to have Dr. Greg Wills with us. Dr. Gregory Wills, who is a research professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and also serves as the director of the B.H. Carroll Center for Baptist Heritage and Mission. And uh, you've been in that role how long now? For almost a year. Almost a year. And uh, it's been a very unusual year as you've tried to get uh, acclimated to the climate there in uh, Texas. Right. But the most unusual thing is, of course, the COVID-19 experience. And we've all, all, all had that. But the, the, the biggest change, of course, is having been 25 years with my precious colleagues and friends at Southern Seminary and yeah. our church, LaGrange Baptist Church in Kentucky, just uh, tearing up, tearing out all those roots and, and removing that's that's been the biggest adjustment you are uh, deeply missed by me and many others uh, in this area and I know friends and uh, workers that you've labored with a number of years like you mentioned so you were there uh, for all of those years since what what was the first year you came 90, 94. 94 okay 94, yes really early on in, in terms of dr. Moeller's uh, presidency right. And uh, so, so you left us, you abandoned us. Yeah. Uh, why did you leave us? And by us, I mean uh, those who are associated with, affiliated with Southern Seminary. Tell us well, about that decision. I know that had yeah. to be a, a difficult one. Yeah, well, Kathy and I both deeply, deeply miss our beloved community there at Southern Seminary. And as I said, at our church, LaGrange Baptist Church up in LaGrange, in Oldham County, and God had blessed our ministries in so many ways, so richly. When um, when Dr. Greenway was elected by the trustees at Southwestern to be president, um, he and I had gotten to know each other pretty well. We'd worked together very closely. We were both deans for the same term at Southern. He was dean of the of the Billy Graham School, I dean of School right. of Theology. And when he asked me to consider going to Southwestern, my initial response was, well, sure, I'll pray about it. I'll go wherever God calls me to go. But (laughs) I was confident that God was calling me to Southern Seminary. Uh, He had called me there, and I was confident that um, in all likelihood, God was not going to call me anywhere else. I mean, every, every way I could look at it at that point, it, it just doesn't make any sense to go anywhere else for any reason. And um, when I told Kathy that Dr. Greenway had asked us to pray about it and think about it, uh, like Sarah, she laughed. Right. And so that's how absurd this whole thing was to us is that um, it just, it just seemed impossible that God would call us anywhere else. But, but out of principle and out of uh, regard, for Dr. Greenway, we decided, of course, we will 
talk about it and pray about it. Assuming this would take 24 hours, 48 hours, you know, to be absolutely confident, absolutely sure. Um, but the more we, we prayed and talked about it, the more we realized that we can't just dismiss it. Mm. And so as, as we analyzed the situation as best we could from a, a biblical perspective, it seemed certainly possible that God might call us there. And so we, we brought in some godly counselors uh, that we, we started having a discussion in prayer with um, several, several godly uh, people and couples and, um, and much to our surprise and much to their surprise, we all came to the same conclusion that as best we can discern, it was our duty to go and lay our shoulder mm. to the work down here. And, uh, and so we came here because we believe that we were called to come here and there's nothing else that could have uh, uprooted us from that, the blessed ministries we had there. Well, and Southern's loss is uh, certainly a gain for Southwestern. And as a Southern Baptist, it's a gain for all Southern Baptists. And so I'm, I'm, though I'm very sad you're no longer closer uh, to me in proximity, I'm glad that you're serving one of our six seminaries. And I'm thankful for what God's doing at Southwestern and how God is using you. And it sounds like you think through these processes similar to the way I do. I think of opportunity, ability, responsibility. And uh, I mean, you're obviously you had the opportunity, uh, but there's a sense, uh, I think when God's calling us somewhere where we also have a sense of responsibility, that this is something God's gifted us to be able to do. There's an opportunity here, and then it becomes a responsibility to use our gifts uh, in the best way for the advancement of his kingdom. So I really right. appreciate the thoughtful, prayerful way you uh, went through that. And uh, I know the Lord has you exactly where he wants you at this time. And I look forward to seeing uh, to seeing how God continues to use you. Now, I met you. Uh, you probably don't remember this, <laughs> uh, but it was probably 10 years after you came to Southern. I took a course of yours in 2003, History of the Baptist, and it had a uh, profound impact on me. I, I think uh, in terms of becoming a historian, probably uh, three things I could point to one would be my study of baseball history as a kid uh, and my love for history there, and then interest in Westerns, and then actually wanting to discover the real story behind the kind of mythos of the West mm -hmm. uh, as a teenager. And then, uh, uh, so a general love for history, and then coming into that Baptist history course, the first Baptist history course I ever took, it was one what we called then J-terms, and it was almost exactly 17 years ago uh, to when we're speaking right now, 17 years ago in June, uh, that we had that week-long course. And I was uh, impressed by your piety first over, obviously, the historical skill that you have. But uh, as you opened each day, uh, as all of our professors do, but it was just especially devotional time as you opened each with scripture reading and prayer that had a tremendous impact on me. I think I mentioned to you before, I think you were reading, you actually read from the Greek New Testament. You'd think you probably didn't, that that wasn't normally your practice, but there may have been something odd Sometimes. going on. I may have at times. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah. So, but anyway, I was, I was just deeply struck that you were a, a person, not just an academic on you, but, 
someone who loved Christ and his church. And that had a tremendous impact on me. So thank you for that. Well, God, God's grace and mercy, the extraordinary, uh, you know, God has, God blessed my, my ministry at Southern and I'm just delighted to see the fruit of the spirits working in the lives of so many students. Here's the proof. There it is. There Summer it is. Look at that. What about that? Oh, and, and still using Torbit. Using yeah. Torbit and, uh, and democratic religion. I want to talk to you about that in a few moments. And, and a reader of primary sources. Boy, I spent primary many sources. hours. I still, have, I still have that. I've got it here in the drawer close by. And uh, that was one of the gifts of that class was the exposure that you gave us to primary sources, uh, which is well, just a tremendous gift. And the paper that you required for that course, I think we might have had two options. One was to do something through the polity book uh, that was several, um, several uh, classic Baptist church manuals. Uh, that uh, Mark Dever had edited and put together in one volume. I think we could go through that or we could do a research paper. And I had already gone through the polity book at, at that point, so I wanted to do something different. I, I did a research paper for you. And that's the first time that I went into a, a library and kind of de did some archival work. You pushed uh, that kind of primary source emphasis and it was very, it was just very, I was like skimming the surface of the ground in terms of spade work. But I did go to the uh, microfilm and, and read some old Baptist papers and, and found an old confession of faith by the uh, International Mission Board, Foreign Mission Board then from 1919. And uh, I wrote a paper on confessions of faith uh, in Baptist history. And uh, again, that's something you emphasized in the class, the importance of confessions of faith, church discipline, those things, I, I mean, they impact who I am as a pastor and a, and professor and student still to this day. So thank you. For your you impact. mentioned you you mentioned that 1919 confession mm -hmm. of the International Mission Board, not widely known today. Um, in, interesting. 1918. Uh, things that are going on leading up to that, of course. But there it is. The 1918 uh, Spanish flu pandemic okay of course is going on at the same time that you're mm -hmm. having a very intense discussion among southern baptists and uh among southern baptists between southern baptists and some other denominations about uh, cooperation and union and that's one of the reasons that southern baptists at that time doubled down on confessionalism is because southern baptists the vast majority said we will cooperate in ways that we can, but we cannot co cooperate in any um, church or uh, yep. church planning or theological education unless we are agreed on doctrine. And so, and so here's the confessional basis upon which we'll be glad anyone who wants to agree with us will work with you. Well, that's fascinating. I did not realize that, uh, that connection. And uh, is that something you've just been thinking about recently with the pandemic or that's something you've been aware of for some time. Well, I have been aware of it in many respects, but it's, it's you, you don't always tie together the coherence uh, of things in time, how, how the participants in history are experiencing things at the same time, because we tend to focus in on a topic or a, a movement. Um, it's, but it's one of several areas that I've been doing primary research in recent weeks.
Oh, that's great. Are you, do you think an article might come out of that? I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to finish up a book. I'm sure we'll talk about it later. Yep. But for example, I was looking at the Southwestern Journal of Theology he, from the seminary here from 1918 because they had some information on this, the influenza impact upon the campus and the, from the fall of 1918. But that entire issue otherwise was devoted to this question of union and cooperation, the entire issue. And so it got, kind of hit, hit hard that contemporaneity. They were contemporaneous. Yeah. yeah. So lots of things coming together with the rise of uh, modernism and the whole Pope's uh, trial and a lot of things happening around that period that uh, really pushed Southern Baptists to think about these issues. Um, right. And missions, foreign missions was central to that. The, the modernist, fundamentalist modernist controversy for American denominations began on the mission field, began among missionaries in China, American missionaries. And, and for that matter, um, uh, United Kingdom missionaries were fighting it out on liberalism and a huge controversy emerged among them and ultimately a very significant division among them at about this time, 1917, 18, 19, and 20. And some of the, some of the earliest battles in the United States were uh, echoes and repercussions from what was going on among the missionaries in China. And that, that includes Southern Baptist missionaries. We had, had quite a few of our missionaries in China who had embraced liberalism as well. They didn't, they, they, they weren't permitted to stay on uh, once, once we worked it through, um, they, of course, were either dismissed or resigned. You did. Uh, one of the things you required in the course that uh, I took with you 17 years ago was the Democratic Religion book. Was that the fruit of your, uh, I think it's the fruit of your doctoral studies. Uh, where, did, where did you do that work? And uh, tell us a little bit about the background to that. Right. I did my PhD at Emory University in Atlanta, Methodist affiliated school at the divinity school level. Um, of course, at the university, there's very, very little. There's a traditional connection, of course, to United Methodism, but, but the divinity school is the only, as far as I know, the only formal connection anymore. But I went there to work with Brooks Holyfield largely and, and because of the incredible resources that Emory has, including its library resources, and in the course of some doing my my comprehensive preparing for my comprehensive exams and writing a couple of dictionary articles that my supervisor had asked me to write for an encyclopedia that he was one of the editors of, I I got into some Southern Baptist primary sources, some some biographies, some church minute books, some association minutes. And I discovered there a culture that was entirely different than what I expected to find because from all kinds of secondary sources, I had expected to see Southern Baptists on the forefront of, of expressions of individualism and uh, free, you know, free Baptists expressing that in, in various ways. And what I discovered was very, very different than that. I discovered a, a movement of evangelical believers who were committed to following Christ as he revealed his will for the churches and for Christians in the scriptures in every area, and that 
included areas that were very unpopular, areas that, um, and, and, and I should say part of that unpopularity was a rejection of at least certain aspects of individualism. And, and right. one, of the, one of the areas that was most accessible, most visible was the area of church discipline. And there was a book very popular at that time by Nathan Hatch called um, The Democratization of American Christianity. Very fine book. And a, a book that has, has, has um, shaped the, the research, the scholarship, the writing on American Christianity in many ways over the last 25 years or so. And in that book also, I expected to find Southern Baptist, because of how he portrayed Baptist in that book, Southern Baptist to be these, these hyper-individualists, and nobody can tell any individual what to do. Um, I follow Christ and Christ alone. Nobody, nobody can say boo to me. When, of course, in the churches, it's just the opposite. In order to become a member of a Baptist church, you, you pledged yourself to a covenant in which you promised to submit to the church and to be subject to its control. And that's the exact phraseology of many of the church covenants of the Southern churches anyway, where I did most of my primary research, especially in Georgia, where I did the bulk of the church level and association level research. So I found, I found a movement very different than what I expected. Yeah, and I put the, I had the cover up for a moment of the democratic religion and addressing issues of freedom and authority and, and, and church discipline in, uh, what was what were the years 1785 to 1900 yes so uh that that was a a, a great introduction for me to, to primary source work because that's primarily what you're doing no pun intended primarily working on those uh, church minute books and right. showing what congregationalism looked like in those churches and uh and and the greatest examples of that in terms of how church discipline was carried out and uh, one of the questions I'm often asked, and I always use a couple of paragraphs from your book to answer, is why does church discipline not happen as commonly today? We're seeing a bit of a resurgence of it in our day, but still I think we have to say predominantly it's, it's not there as much as it was in the uh, 19th, 18th, 19th centuries. And I always look... Uh, when I first read these words, I may have read your book before the class. I can't remember if I'd already been exposed to it or not, but I always think of these words from your introduction um, from uh, page nine. This is your book, page nine. Uh, here, here's what you said. See if you remember this. this. This really has stood out to me over the years. And I often, even when I'm doing Zoom conversations with students, sometimes uh, and they ask that question in these live Q&As. I'll reach behind me and pull this book off and I'll just read it. You said, after the Civil War, Baptist observers began to lament that church discipline was foundering, and it was. It declined partly because it became more burdensome in larger churches. Young Baptists refused in increasing numbers to submit to discipline or dancing, and the churches shrank from excluding them. Urban churches, pressed by the need for large buildings, and the desire for refined music and preaching subordinated church discipline to the task of keeping the church solvent. Many Baptists shared a new vision of the church, replacing the pursuit of purity with a quest for efficiency. That sentence summarizes the last couple hundred years, probably. Uh, they lost the resolve to purge their, their churches of straying members. And then listen to this. 
Remember this? <laughs> it's powerful. No one publicly advocated the demise of discipline. No Baptist leader arose to call for an end to congregational censures. No theologians argued that discipline was unsound in principle or practice. No freedom party, in quotes here, arose to quash the tyranny of the redeemed. It simply faded away. As if Baptists had grown weary of holding one another accountable. I can't think of a better description in a couple of paragraphs of what actually happened. And, you know, this, would you, do you still affirm that assessment? Yes. Uh, yes. yes, very much. I, I, I think by, I, I think that's right. Yeah. That's, um, you read, wrote that probably 20 years ago, at least. And, uh, uh, this, it is a very, uh, helpful, I think, description of what has happened as churches became, uh, more uh, interested in growing larger, which is not a bad motivation in and of itself, if it means evangelizing, baptizing, discipling believers, and holding them accountable. But that's uh, church discipline can get in the way of uh, some of those things that we hold more dear than we do the purity of the church. Like that phrase, purity, a quest for purity to. Um, Efficiency or pursuit of efficiency. I think that's how you said it. Yeah. That's, yeah, and, uh, and I need, I just, I need to say here that, um, whatever, whatever insights that book has are 10 times better because my supervisor books, Holyfield did not let me get away with anything and no sloppiness, no imprecision, no, um, no unsourced conclusions or arguments. And so he kept pushing me. He kept, Kicking, he kept kicking my dissertation back with all kinds of. Uh, he used he would use blue and black um, in two different re readings of it, and he would kick kick it back to me. And so mm -hmm. I, I owe a great debt to him to making me think harder, think deeper, and and write more carefully. And so his his fingerprints are all over that as well. You've done that for a generation of students, or or more now that, uh, I mean, you've had that impact on me in, in terms of pushing primary sources, make the argument from the sources, uh, don't just generalize. Uh, that's been a tremendous mm -hmm. gift to me. And I, I had the opportunity to do a doctoral seminar with you and it was, wasn't my best work because I was doing like, I was working, I was doing too many at the same, that's my yeah, excuse anyway. But uh, that course, was very formative in, in how you had us read through historical works uh, and give a thesis uh, statement. I'm sure you still do this, a thesis statement for each uh, chapter. Uh, and to be able to argue that and defend it in class in front of your peers, uh, that, that was a tremendous gift. And I've got probably behind me here, there may be where you can't see them, the books we read for that course in terms of uh, the works uh, on uh, New England Puritans is, of course, I'm talking about up through the new divinity. And uh, that was a, a great, I mean, you've, you just, you continue to pass that on. So I know uh, Brooks Holyfield would be happy with how you're continuing to push people to the sources and to make those cases in a, a clear way. Right. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to help the part, part of my calling of course is, is what that's all about. With regard to uh, counting numbers and the popularity, efficiency, 
all of that. It's a perennial problem with the church. It's been a problem with the church from the very beginning, right? It's, it's one, of the, one of the ways in which we are tempted to distrust our creator. I, I, all sin, in, in some measure, in, in probably fundamental measures, is a distrust of what God has said. Whether, whether it's cognitive or voluntary, wherever the source of it is, um, it is ultimately a distrust. We don't do what he's commanded. We do something else, which is an expression of distrust, mm-hmm. right? And so yes, we don't trust his methods, his truth, his measures and, and uh, policies, commands in the church to do what the church must do, and that is preach the gospel, save sinners, um, uh, sanctify the saved, and all to his praise and glory, doing all the things command us to do, and grow. We don't, we don't believe that it will actually be successful if we right. do what God says in the way that God says it. Even if we don't, we don't mean, we don't usually mean to be doing that, mm-hmm. but if we disobey him in any of these areas, if we substitute something else, it is a distrust and ultimately a disobedience. Yeah, that's the irony. These churches were thriving evangelistically, and you show in the book, uh, baptizing 50 to 100 people at a time. Uh, in fact, there's one striking story you tell, and I can't remember all the details now, but it just came to mind of a maybe a, a young woman named Julia. One of them was Julia, uh, who was calling out to someone who was watching. Uh, she was watching her friend being baptized, and it was such a clear break with her former lifestyle that there was a crying out to one another almost farewell almost a parting ways and it was a very moving uh, testimony to all those who were there and and then also another thing came to my mind as you were sharing that another line you quote i think it was john dag in the book that when, when discipline leaves the church christ leaves with it yeah i think he said the spirit leaves with it but yes it's the same thing and of course what he's reflecting there is that if we don't exercise church discipline, we are deliberately disobeying mm-hmm. whatever, what, whatever rationale we may have, it is still disobedience, no matter how you, how you analyze it. And can a disobedient church, a church that has set its course on disobedience, expect the blessing of the spirit, the continued presence of the spirit? Well, no. Now, mm-hmm. of course, I've reflected on that phrase many times, actually. And this, I think I may have even written an essay on it at one point for somebody, but God is so incredibly merciful, right? And so when we take hands to the ark, he doesn't always strike us down the way he did as a, mm-hmm. he would be just in doing so. But, but God's patience and mercy is often extended over many, many generations. Um, but that does not excuse our disobedience, doesn't excuse our high-handed testing of the Lord. We cannot rely upon his mercy, we must pursue obedience regardless. You know, we, we reap those benefits sometimes from previous generations, faithfulness as well, I think. Um, you preached a sermon, you mentioned us and, and being struck dead as he, as he tried to steady the ark. Uh, you preached a sermon several years ago in chapel at Southern. I don't remember how many years ago, but it was on Acts 5. And you addressed the topic of church discipline and one of the things you, I think you labored to show there was uh, that Christ 
takes the purity of his church as seriously as as was taken the obedience of the Israelites, uh, because those were struck dead. We know those examples from the Old Testament, Abihu, Uzzah, others. But in the many New others. Testament, many, in fact, many. I've, I've, I've thought recently that it would be useful to write a little essay or article on all the people whom God killed in the no. scriptures. Right? I, I is is Lot's wife the first one? I'm. I'm I haven't, haven't made my list yet, but I've, I've thought about it in my head a few times. Uh, that it would probably be very instructive for me to do the exercise, regardless of whether it mm. resulted in an essay or not. And you preached that on, and, and basically talked about the importance of the purity of the church and church discipline through that. That was a sermon that made a great impact in, uh, on me and in, in thinking through these issues. So, uh, again, thank you for your work, uh, not only historically accurate, uh, well-sourced uh, based on your training, but also very applicable to the church today because there are reasons why these things were done in the past, and we're called to that same faithfulness today. But right. you did, we, we should move on to talk about uh, another major work you did. By the way, both of these works, Democratic Religion, uh, Democratic Religion was published uh, by Oxford University Press, just as your uh, You've done other works as well, but another major work was the history of Southern Seminary. You probably remember working on that for a number of years, the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary back in 2009. Hard to believe that's been, man, 11 years ago uh, since that moment, such a big moment for many of us uh, who uh, love Southern Seminary. And you did the history, uh, and it was uh, a great Great work. I, I remember when I read it, and many other people have made this observation, but I, the, the real power of it is not only that it told the story of that particular institution, but it's a story that really tells the story of the Southern Baptist Convention during that same time period, which is basically its entire history, as well as evangelicalism, at least uh, in the South. Uh, what are your reflections? I mean, thinking back now, 10 years later, after having written that, uh, what are your reflections on that and the impact, import of that work uh, that you think uh, still remains? And would you have, uh, is there anything you would have treated differently or handled differently were you writing it today? Right. All right. So it was, I, I realized early on in the research that the, the path of the Southern Baptist Convention strongly paralleled and intersected with the path of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. And it was, it would be an excellent means by which to tell the history of Southern Baptist through the history of the seminary. And so that became a goal very early in my research to, to allow it. And of course it, it, it wasn't just in order to tell the, the history of Southern Baptist, but because the history of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary could not be told well without fitting it in its context. And so I could, to accomplish the goal of the one, I really had to accomplish the goal of the other in any case. And, but I, well, the thing I, that became clear so early was that the, the, the sources and the story itself, the, the individuals and, and the theology 
and the career of the institution showed how, how closely intertwined Southern the Southern Baptist experience was with the experience of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, the, the big benefit is that being a theological seminary, I, I had a duty as well as an opportunity to deal, to deal in depth with the theological uh, controversies and trends impacting the Southern Baptist Convention because those were, were being dealt with intensively at the seminary. Now, you ask, what would, what would I do differently? Well, I, I'd love it to be shorter, but I just, I'm not sure that's really possible. What is it, 560 pages or something like that? It's, it may even, I, I'm not even sure, I don't remember. But, but I think the, the one major thing that I would do differently is, is how I handle slavery and race and, and white superiority, white supremacy. And uh, no excuses here. My, uh, my time was short, but it was, I, I, I was working really fast. But what I discovered when I, I wrote the draft of the report of the committee that Dr. Muller appointed two years ago to study and, and produce a report on the legacy of slavery and racism at Southern Seminary, what I discovered was a lot of material that I had not seen. A lot of material that, I, and I hadn't seen it because I didn't think to look for it, but, but here's where I regret. I should have known to look for it. Mm. I should have known that if I look, I bet if I look for this, I bet I can find things. And so it's not like, it's not like they were uh, hidden or obscured, but I just wasn't asking the right questions to turn them up. And so having done that, the research for that report, I discovered a lot of material that I regretted not having searched for and found and included in my treatment of the entire history of the seminary. So that's what I would. Since I knew your role in, in that report, I, I thought you might go there with that particular question. Um, the, one, one of the uh, great things and maybe the challenging things about historical studies is that new questions continue to be being raised and asked. And uh, where that's really beneficial is as historians, that gives us job security because there's new ways of coming to look at uh, those primary sources. And when we come asking a different question, uh, we discover things we may miss uh, when we're looking for, I mean, you're looking for theological liberalism, you're looking for the, all those big trends as you go through there, and you did an excellent job with that. Uh, and you didn't unfaithfully handle any of the other material either, but uh, just having the perspective and, the, and, and asking that different question uh, turns up other stuff. It's not like you're recreating. Some people would charge it, you know, this is for revisionist history. That's not revisionist history. You're actually discovering stuff that was already there. Uh, we just weren't looking in the right places or asking the right questions uh, that uncover that. So right. thanks for your... Human, yeah, human experience is so complex. And, and the historical record is so complex. That there's just no way to capture in, in a book, in, in one research effort, writing effort, that complexity. And so the asking the new questions, we, we tell the story from a different angle, different aspects of the story and that kind of thing. And so we learn, we learn more lessons by asking new questions, doing new research. Well, thank you for your work on that. That's a tremendous uh, piece of uh, the original work and then the work you did on the 
report on uh, on Southern Seminary and the history of slavery and racism. Both Southern, of those. Can I just say Southern Seminary's history is so important to American evangelicalism and to the history of Southern Baptists, and so I I have not changed at all in my my appraisal of the importance of that. And so I didn't write that. If, if I had not thought it was an important story to tell, if I hadn't thought it was really important, I probably wouldn't have taken four or five years of my life and dedicated it almost exclusively to that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but and I have not changed Oxford, my opinion. Oxford University Press shared that opinion. They don't typically just uh, publish institutional histories, but they uh, recognize, I'm sure the proposal you made, uh, articulated the significance of this well beyond any kind of provincial type uh, concern. This is a, this is a big deal because of, of what it says about the wider uh, culture and uh, the, the nomination. Thank you for your work. And uh, certainly uh, I'm thankful you used that time for that project. Um, so what are you working on now? What, what are you in terms of writing projects? I know you're, you have the B.H. Carroll Center, which is a tremendous thing. I'm glad. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. But uh, and research professor, does that mean you're not doing as much in the classroom? I know it's kind of hard to talk about now with the COVID-19 being a little uh, throwing everything out off kilter. But then what are you writing? And um, the center, the center is brand new. And so there's still a lot, lot to be done to get it up and running and doing all the stuff we wanted to do and yeah COVID-19 has has what's the word uh well it has caused progress to cease on on that but but once things get back to normal or whatever the new normal is we keep using that phrase new normal and we'll continue to advance and progress on the, the research center the BS Carroll Center um what I'm trying to get completed is a draft of a history of Southern Baptist. And so I've got a ton of writing done. I still need to do some more writing, but, but it's, it's, it's been, um, the way I wrote it was a little haphazard. I did it, I wrote here and then there and didn't write it in chronological order. And so I've got a lot of editorial work to do. So that's the big project on my plate right now. Number of smaller projects, but I also have several books that uh, I want to write. Uh, one, I'd like to write a, a biography of B.H. Carroll and a couple others, perhaps. But um, in a few years, hopefully write a history of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, if the Lord gives me opportunity to do that. Great. And uh, I would, I have it in mind, and I ha- haven't written a proposal yet, but I have it in mind to write or, or co-write a, a work on Southern Baptist and slavery and race. Mm. That's, that's a big one, but it's really important. Of course, it's really timely, but I, I've talked to a couple of people about this and would like to do that. I'd love to write a book on baptism, a little book, not a big one, but uh, there's just so much, there's so much from our history. And we Baptists wrote about baptism a lot, of course, for a number of reasons, one of which is because so many other Bible-believing Christians disagreed with us and so we wrote a lot about it, but it seems to me that a lot of what we once knew as a denomination, we either have forgotten or, or just barely know. And so I think it would be useful to, 
talk about a lot of these things. Um, one other, what was it um, that I, oh, oh, I've, I'm uh, going to co-write with, uh, with Michael Haken, A History of Theology, and so I'm excited about that as well. Oh, that's great. Well, that, that should keep you busy for the next few years. Yeah, I need, I need to pick up the pace. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, one thing we're certain of, that uh, those works will be carefully written. Uh, you'll have Brooks Holyfield looking over your shoulder, I'm sure. And uh, you'll continue to document and uh, source your uh, conclusions and uh, your trusted source on matters of uh, history and church history in particular. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your faithfulness as a historian. Uh, thank you. I, probably you didn't even realize some of these things I've shared with you today of the impact that you've had on me personally. So thank you for that. I'm sure that could be multiplied thousandfold uh, with students you've had over the years. Uh, you've invested and uh, your sincerity, the reality of your walk with the Lord has been a blessing. Have you been, I'm sure you're plugged into a local church there. I know uh, you uh, love the church, not just generically, but a particular body of believers. And, uh, and uh, I'm grateful for you and, and how you model that as a not just as a historian, but as a churchman. And thank you for that. Well, brother, thank you for those kind words. Uh, it's been a joy getting to know you over the years and share work together in various ways through the seminary. And thank you. It's been a, a, a joy joyful time renewing fellowship here by Zoom. Well, thank you for the conversation. God bless you. And uh, talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Conversations with Friends about Church History. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If so, please share with your friends and keep listening.